This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Bobby Duffy. Bobby Duffy is the director of the Policy Institute at King's College London and the author of a new book, Generations, Does When You're Born Shape Who You Are? And I should point out that I'm also a member of Bobby's Policy Institute. So first things first, Bobby, could you please explain for the benefit of our listeners the different uh, categories of generations you've been talking about in your book that can be quite confusing to the non-expert? Yes, you're right. It's, it's important to d- define which ones we're talking about. So the generations I look at in the book are the five ones that you would see most commonly discussed in the media which uh, I start with pre-war generation who were born before 1945 Uh, then we move on to baby boomers who are very large cohort born between 1945 and 1965 then it's uh, Gen X who are born 1966 through to 1979 my generation Um, then it's millennials uh, 1980 through to 1995 and finally Gen Z who are born uh, 1996 and after although there's still discussion about whether we've got a new generation coming through generation alpha people are already starting to talk about whether it's like kids aged 11 and under so I don't really look at that in the book. So what spurred you to write the book in the first place was it a feeling that there was a kind of growing uh, an inaccurate sense of intergenerational warfare out there and you were determined to try and prove it but then since your book is brimming with statistics you don't just you don't just opine you actually back up your analysis with with figures and statistics uh, you had no no guarantee maybe that what you, what you embarked on would be the same thing by the end of the exercise uh, so yeah it's a really good point I mean I think where it really started for me was um, uh, looking at data by when people were born rather than their age so I did this exercise of looking at what's the difference between these different cohorts that we just talked about and what I saw was really big differences on some things and then no differences on other things Um, so big things like religion very very generational or cohort driven whether you're connected to religion across different countries Uh, but other things that were claimed to be different between generations say that um, the latest generation are lazy at work or mm. whatever uh, disproved by the data so then I looked you know this is 15 years ago so I looked more at the kind of um, thinking around generations that goes all the way back to really great thinkers like Karl Mannheim the Hungarian social physiologist then Auguste Comte the French philosopher and for them generational differences were a really big idea about how does society change because we get stuck in our ways when we get past a certain age and uh, you need this refreshment from new generations coming through. So I think that the main motivation for the book is that generational thinking is a really big idea that lets us understand how societies change and understand our possible futures that's been horribly corrupted by lots of stereotypes and cliches. Lazy thinking. Lazy thinking, yeah. So it's not I don't think uh, generational thinking is important. It's actually the opposite. But in order to see how important it is, you need to get rid of these stereotypes and myths. 
Is the impact, first of all, on, on public policy in terms of public policy choices and public policy prescriptions that, that the guys who do the policy for us, our elected governments, uh, they need to have a better handle on this before they start? Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, if you want to understand the future, which, you know, governments do, you want to know what is, what's coming next, what's the next thing that we should be worrying about, or, or what's the things that are going to sort themselves out over time when we don't need to intervene in too much. Um, you need to have a generational perspective on things and that's um, you can see that in all sorts of very large and then smaller behavior so things like um, alcohol consumption incredibly generational um, mm. in terms of frequency of, of drinking alcohol um, and that to be honest is a is a reflection of policy uh, impact over the long term we've created an environment over time that people are less socialized into alcohol drinking same with smoking smoking uh, regular smoking is uh, incredibly generational but it, it took a long time for that to feed through it's really only gen z this youngest generation now where you're seeing a generational break in smoking as a habit but that's a result of many many policy decisions that were uh, um, absolutely generational in their focus it was about taking out um, from the normal environment in advertising sponsorship as well as you know how easy or difficult it is to buy cigarettes uh, taking that out of the norm for that generation so they never grew up with that attachment to smoking brands and all mm. of those types of things when they when they were in those very malleable formative years and that's we're seeing the benefits of that now but it, it shows that that generational perspective is uh, vastly important in having in dealing with these really big long-term problems that we have well, you write in the book about period effects, life cycle effects, and mm. cohort effects. Could you briefly explain what each one is, please? Yeah. So this is sort of magical to me in some ways. It's much more magical than the stereotypes you get about generations. Because effectively, all types of change and difference that we see in societies can be explained by one of those three effects, or, or more often a mix of the three. So it's... Um, uh, Period effects are where something happens and it affects all of us to some degree. Um, these That includes big things like shocks, like a pandemic, for example. That's a classic period effect where we've all doing all been impacted in some sort of way and it's, it's different now from before the pandemic. But you also have economic crashes or wars. Those types of things are period effects. But you also have this kind of slow grind of period effects where the context changes slowly and we're all affected by it say on our attitudes to homosexuality that's a kind of cultural change that's a slower change so you've got those types of effects but we also have life life cycle effects where we change as we age and go through particular life stages so when you leave home or, or get your first job or uh, get married have kids those types of things change us and um, so they're very powerful currents that pull us along a certain path uh, so it tends to dampen the differences between generations because you go through these stages and you kind of change your mind or change your behaviours about things when you get to those sorts of stages. And then you have cohort effects, which are what you would think of as generational effects, where one generation is different from the others and stays different over time. It's something about that generation, not about the time period they're living through or how old they are. They stay different as they go through and that's the kind of classic things around religion um, your attachment to uh, a religion is very dependent on when you were brought up and that tends to mean that older generations much more attached to religion you can say the same sort of thing with political parties mm -hmm. in 
um, lots of countries where that's very generational that we tend to be less connected to one particular political party now than in the past because things like um, trade unions or religion or other things that used to connect people to parties are weaker now so we haven't got that automatic connection to one politi uh, particular political party that you may have had in the past. You obviously write a lot about the United Kingdom, but then we do bring in the United States and other European countries. To what extent are these these aspects you're talking about in, in, in society, are they can be translated into other countries as well, or are we all broadly the same, at least in the West, or the quite distinct national differences? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've very deliberately looked across countries and across Western countries, not really so much the more emerging uh, economies, but it really trying to focus across, because... There's good reason to think that there may be more similarities between generations now than in the past because we've had globalization, we've had a, a digital communications technology that has put, uh, you know, leveled out culture across uh, countries. So uh, it used to be thought that generations were very nationally specific, but in a more globalized world, they are more connected uh, now. So I look a lot at European countries um, in the data. And uh, it's a real mix. And what one of the sayings in the book is that country comes uh, before cohort right. quite a lot of the time because the very specific nature of local uh, nations, uh, national uh, cultures or behaviours does quite often trump these generational things because you see these enormous ranges of uh, what proportion of young people still live at home into their 20s in you know it's hardly anyone in Norway or Scandinavian countries mm. and it's half half of young adults in Italy or other southern European countries but there are definite parallels in lots of um, definite consistencies across generations and it is really my um, one of the key theses of the book is it's these big things that shape cohorts this is this was the original thinking of generational um, change. It's big things that happen. It's not small technological changes of what new device or platform there is around. It's things like an economic crash. So the economic crash has shaped the future in a very different way. The 2008 financial crisis shaped, shaped the future in a very different way for co young cohorts uh, across lots of European countries. And um, that includes things like house price boom and then um, bust, uh, but then the financial tightening that's meant it's harder for young people to get um, uh, mortgages or loans to buy their own property. So you do see, even in places that don't have the same um, kind of uh, obsession with houses, uh, house home ownership and house prices, as you say, see in the UK, places like Germany, um, you do see a very different future and lower levels of ownership for younger people in lots and lots of countries. And, and that has massive knock-on effects if you are uh, on your life. If, if house prices keep rising, wealth has become more important as a discriminator between groups than income. That's been one of the big trends in the West overall. So wealth has become increasingly concentrated at the top of the age range. Assets, basically. Assets, yeah. 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 And a lot of that is house prices or the value of pensions right. or uh, or just stock prices um, and, and investments more generally. That has become concentrated at the top of the age range in a way that we haven't had before because wealth has become more important. It's really hard for young people to mm. build up wealth. Um, uh, so that has... All sorts of implications and one of the big ones is you know we have gone from seeing 
the majority of people thinking that the future is going to be better for young people in the early 2000s to places n now, particularly places like France, where you've got like 13% of the population in France think the future is going to be better for young people, only 13%, and then the majority think it's going to be worse. So you've got that for me is the real generational challenge. It's not about moving assets or um, income from young uh, from old to young. It's much more about how do we see the future? Do we have faith in a better future for our kids? Which is, um, I think, the uh, one of the biggest risks right now. And the European Commission is taking that very seriously in terms of its focus on future generations. Mm. Um, and I think that's right. I think that. I think what we've got to understand is that that focus on future generations is not just about young people, it's about how we all see the future because we are so connected to our kids and grandkids and we want to see a better future for them, but we're no longer thinking that's the case. Well, I said the, the book is full of data. You don't, you're not just making these comments without very strong statistical backing. Um, to what extent, uh, in terms of the methodology, was it was it a challenge to collect the data? And along the, the way of uh, assembling, collating all this data, were there some findings that surprised even you? Mm. I suspect you had an idea of what you're going to find before you found it. But nonetheless, was that also something quite striking when you got to the end of your analysis? Yeah, I mean, the data, that it was a big data gathering exercise. So we had <coughs> three million interviews in total. So we put together all the Eurobarometer studies, all the European Social Survey studies, the general social survey in the US and UK versions of that um, in one place and that was um, a big task uh, and a lot of thanks to the team who did that but now it's a great resource for us and I suppose I mean like the the surprise I suppose for me is where I've bought into the stereotypes because it's really hard not to buy into these mm -hmm. stereotypes and the big one I suppose is this constant assertion that um, old people don't click care about climate change older mm. groups don't care about climate change it's only young people who do and it's just not true I mean there is a bit of a gap but it's not much it's mm. really not much compared to the rhetoric so when Greta Thunberg was made Times person of the year in 2019 time called her a standard bearer in a generational battle and uh, and couched it very much in the sense of old against mm. young mm. young against old and that's just wrong um uh, the, the data that i've got shows that you know, you know it's a, a few percentage points difference in things like whether climate change is a serious problem and then when you get onto behaviors more broadly on social responsibility or um, social purpose it's actually older groups that tend to boycott products or brands more than younger groups and mm. um, they're more active in those types of things partly because you know they've got the resources and choice to do some of that um so this is really dangerous because it's um it not only does it put an awful lot too much on young people to sort things out it also dismisses this vast swathe of the mm. population um a growing demographic of because we've all got aging um societies and the wealthiest of um, uh, the uh, and most politically powerful uh, part of the population right now. So we are damaging the climate cause by uh, stoking up this false sense of generational division. 
Um, it's quite widespread, isn't it? Because you also talk in the book about, you quote uh, Barack Obama also mm. saying something quite similar. You know, look, luckily, obviously, maybe like some commencement address where you say lots of nice things to young graduates about to go out to the big outside world. But it is, you're basically saying it's, it's, it sounds very nice, but it's not really helpful. That's right. And even dangerous, you say. Dangerous, I think it is dangerous. And I think um, we did a big study on culture wars in the UK, comparing it to the US. And um, I got a lot of contact from journalists across Europe after that because everyone is looking, are we starting to get this cultural war between young and old about how comfortable people are with culture change? And that is another myth, a slightly different one, um, because it's uh, Barack Obama, is, his sort of quotes are around um, how younger generations really believe in equality mm. and really want... Um, uh, that to happen where older generations may have paid lip service to it but they didn't believe it fully mm. and so there's some truth in that but what the crucial point that that misses is that young people are always more comfortable with social change in any generation and cohort they always come at the leading edge of changing the norms and what I did is you look at the gaps between young and old today on current issues um, that people are uh, focused on which could be Black Lives Matter or uh, trans issues or gender identity more generally. And yes, there are big gaps between young and old on that, but they're no different from the gaps between young and old in the past on different issues like homosexuality. Um, so actually, there was a bigger gap between baby boomers much more comfortable with homosexuality than their parents. There's a bigger gap then on that type of issue than we see today on new emergent issues so we've got this incorrect sense that we've got a strange cohort or a strangely large gap between cohorts on social issues and that's fueling a culture war so we've got this wrong sense that there's a bigger gap uh, between young people today and older people than we've had in the past we've got this new generation of social justice warriors mm. or uh, particularly woke generation coming through but when you look at the actual data the gap between young and old on current social issues um, cultural issues is no bigger in fact often smaller than the gap between baby boomers and their parents right. on these yeah, types okay. of issues so this going back to the sorts of three effects that, I, that we talked about this is much more a period effect than a cohort effect so our sense that we're more divided now, because it does feel more divided in, yeah. in lots of ways, is much more to do with our fractious politics, our fractious social media, and fractious media, generally more polarised, where you hear more about the extreme views than uh, the norm. Uh, we, right. we, we amplify these very yeah, extreme views because we didn't have things like social media before. So this is a period change. Um, uh, so really understanding that is really, really important because we are creating this sense of a culture war, a generationally driven culture war, um, cultural division that isn't, uh, isn't to do with the nature of this generation. It's much to do, if, we, if we think it's to do with the generations, uh, we'll have the wrong diagnosis and the wrong response to it. It's much more about um, a changing context. And am I right in saying there's a the, the situation that made it even more complicated, even more dangerous without being too uh, dramatic but in in the broader context of identity politics and and the so-called work agenda so we have the generational war which may be there because for all the wrong reasons you said but also it's part of a broader 
fractious societal discussion about identity politics and all that kind of thing? Yeah, it fuels that. It definitely fuels that sense of, uh, that overblown sense of division. When you, when you look at how divided we are on lots of these things, it's not nearly as bad as it's put across because we've got that focus on the extremes. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that these are all tied up. These trends are all tied up um, with that sense of identity politics, populism. Um, uh, uh, the I- One of the things that's really destructive about dividing people on age, um, and you can see that in the US, the UK, and other European countries, if you start to get these, um, that your party political views are divided by age, it, beca- it gets this horrible self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecy because if you've got lots of young supporters from younger generations, you think demography is on your side. You just have to wait. <laughs> wait and they'll, they'll, they'll grow up and they'll take up more of the... Brexit debate is not dissimilar to that. You just wait for the young people to come through and they will uh, change that. Um, so you, you get complacent and then you, you get pulled towards the most leading edge of cultural change because that's the concerns of your your young base. Um, so you become more uh, focused on these emergent um, concerns and less about the median concerns. But if you're on the other side of that, you're also aware that you've got de- demography working against you and your supporters are older. So your incentives then are to really emphasize the extremeness of the other side, mm. um, to pull as much of your base towards you as possible, um, and to really have that focus on um, how extreme the views are and how mm. uh, unsettling they are to people who have a more traditional view mm. of society. So you get this horrible dynamic of um, campus politics going national, as they would say in the in the US. It's that kind of sense of uh, you get that uh, that uh, uh, examples, silly examples like you get in the UK um, of very small activities by student unions somewhere becoming national news because yeah. the council culture that council culture exactly okay. so that 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 focus on culture council culture is a bit of a inevitable consequence of this generational divide in voting right well the final question then bobby and looking to the future you said just now that the, uh, for example the european commission in, in brussels is is much more aware now of this of these of these issues than than before and introducing into some of their own policy choices. Uh, mm. How about national governments? Obviously, let's start here in our own back door, the United Kingdom. To what extent do you think uh, the government, despite your previous comment about mm. party, party, political party affiliation, um, are, are more sensitive to this and are, are need to take more this on board, this, these genera- generational mm. aspects? Yeah, I mean, more positively, there are some great initiatives going on. So there is a future generations commissioner in Wales um, which is it fo- follows from a, an act, uh, you know, a piece of legislation that requires the Welsh government to take into account today's actions on future generations. Um, okay. So this is a they don't have real, really strong powers, but they can influence um, things. But that's like a, a really good um, a, a first step down this road of embedding longer term thinking. In the end, a lot of this is about can we get longer term thinking embedded. Mm. I do think the European Commission is at the forefront of this, or could be at the forefront of this, if it follows through on the next generation package that it's got, and and uh, I think serious discussions about how do you embed a more future-focused, um, longer-term, intergenerational view within the Commission, and, uh, and there's lots and lots of interest in 
in that type of um, that type of approach with climate change being you know at the core of this that is the classic example where you have to have a longer term vision in order to do that so you need to make changes and sacrifices now that will mm. hopefully have an effect in in the longer term but it applies to lots of other mm. areas of policy it's not just that and you can see how we're at the moment post pandemic um where that longer term view and vision is critical and, uh, and there are some encouraging signs that the commission and some national governments are taking that more seriously but we need to see that followed through okay well we have to leave it there bobby duffy thank you very much for your time no problem thank you paul that's great